Back in July 2010, we started to look together at the Gospel according to Luke. On the 1st of August last year, we looked together at Jesus' birth. And now this morning, we come to his death. During the years of his ministry, Jesus has worked hard to prepare his disciples for his death. He has carefully explained the meaning and the purpose of his death. And now it's time for him to do what he came to earth to do. All of the teaching, all of the miracles, the healings, all of that was important. But it wasn't the reason he came to earth. God could have done all those things through prophets, men like Moses or Elijah or Isaiah. But Jesus came to do the one thing that no other prophet or holy man could do. He came to die for our salvation. So if you haven't already, open your Bible. Turn please to Luke chapter 23. And we'll watch together as Jesus completes his mission. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find it on page 1060. We're going to begin at chapter 23, verse 26, and we'll follow through to verse 49. We're picking up at the point where the Jewish leaders, joined by the crowd, have finally worn Pilate down. They have insistently demanded, we're told, that Jesus be crucified. And so, against his own verdict that Jesus does not deserve death, Pilate has surrendered Jesus to the will of his enemies. That doesn't mean that the Jews are going to execute him. It means Pilate is going to do what the Jews want. Roman soldiers will execute Jesus. So look at verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if man do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is already weakened from severe beatings. Now he's asked to carry his own cross, and clearly he's struggling to do it. The weight is too much for him. We've seen before that crucifixion was a shameful thing. None of the Roman soldiers are going to stoop down under the cross. So they seize a man from the onlookers, Simon of Cyrene. He carries the cross with Jesus. We often talk pretty routinely about Jesus humbling himself. But look at the humility that is on display here. The creator of the universe is so broken and so weak that he needs help to carry his own cross. It's hard for us to imagine a more undignified and pathetic figure. He's staggering through the streets. 
Jesus is drinking the cup he had prayed about before he was arrested. He's drinking the cup of suffering he came to earth to drink. And this is only the beginning. Here the wooden cross is on his back. But soon the weight of the world's sin will be pressing down on him. But he has committed himself to drink this cup down to the dregs. One of our hymns says he is suffering to give us life. But there's a flip side to this. The message of these verses is that those who reject Jesus will not have life. Rejecting Jesus leads to judgment. Look again at verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. These women see a physically broken man going out to be crucified. But Jesus looks at them And he sees a nation that has rejected God's salvation. Yes, they might be emotionally moved by the sight of Jesus here. But they have failed to grasp who he is. They failed to grasp what he came to do. Previously, we've seen Jesus as he stood and wept over Jerusalem. He wept because he knew what their rejection meant. It meant they would face God's judgment. He's mentioned several times before that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Here he says it again, it will be a terrible time. Normally children are considered a great blessing. But during the trauma that's ahead, it will be considered better to have no family. Verse 29, For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. The suffering will be so great that people will want a quick death. That will be better to them than carrying on in misery. Death will be considered a relief. Verse 31, for if man do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's easier to burn dry, dead wood than green wood that's still full of moisture. And Jesus' point seems to be this. If you have treated me as badly as this, how will you be treated for what you have done to me? If my suffering now is bad, and it is bad, how much greater will be the suffering of those who did this to me? Jesus is not gloating here. He's spelling out the terrible cost of rejecting him. We know he's not gloating because he asks the mourners not to weep for him. They're to weep for those who will be judged for rejecting him. Jesus takes no pleasure in the judgment that's coming. But he's in no doubt about the judgment that's coming. And what he describes here happened in the year AD 70. That's about 37 years after he was crucified. The Romans flattened Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that many thousands of Jews were killed. Rome became God's instrument to bring judgment on Israel. 
Jesus explained before that Jerusalem would be destroyed because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In other words, you didn't accept me for who I am, the Son of God. You didn't accept me as your only hope for acceptance and reconciliation with God. Now we might hear this and think, well, that's a shame for Israel. But what has it got to do with me? In the New Testament, Jerusalem's fall is used as a picture of what's ahead for all who reject Jesus. The Roman destruction of Jerusalem was a little picture in history of the greater worldwide judgment at the end of time. At the end of time, Jesus will return to earth not to die in weakness, but to judge with all his sovereign power and authority. So God is love, yes. That's why Jesus is carrying this cross. Second Peter says, God does not desire the eternal destruction of anyone. But there is no hope for those who reject salvation in Christ. That's what this has to do with you and me. This amazing scene in front of us, this deep humility on Jesus' part, it's not just a touching gesture. It's our only hope for reconciliation with God the Father Almighty. Earlier we sang that Jesus is our shelter from the coming wrath. The flip side is that if we are outside of Jesus, then we will not be sheltered from the coming wrath. Rejecting Jesus leads to judgment. And this was shown in a small way in the fall of Jerusalem. It will be shown in a much greater way at the end of history. Those in Christ will be raised to eternal life in God's presence. Those who have rejected Christ will be raised to eternal suffering away from God's presence. We deserve wrath. All of us. And if we turn away from Christ, we have no shelter from the wrath we deserve. And please don't look for comfort in the fact that you're not an active campaigner against Jesus. The leaders who pressured Pilate were not the only ones judged for rejecting Jesus. Each of us will be held accountable for how we respond to him. We can't be half with him. We're either with him or against him. If we won't accept him as the savior who died for us and the king who rules us, then we are rejecting him. Even if we come and sit in church every week. So Jesus' death carries a warning for us. But... It is fundamentally a message of good news. We see that in what happens next. Jesus saves others by refusing to save himself. Look at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' trial took place in the city of Jerusalem. But now as a condemned criminal... He's being led out to be executed outside the city. Remember, the Jews consider him to be a blasphemer. He's going to die under God's curse. But Jerusalem is the place where God is present in the temple. The city is holy in that sense. So this unholy death is going to be outside the city walls. In the Old Testament, contaminated unholy things were forced outside the Israelite camp. And here Jesus is symbolically being cast out into the wasteland, away from God's presence. Now in one sense, this is all wrong. Jesus is innocent. He was telling the truth when he claimed to be the Son of God. He does not deserve to be cast out of the city as a sinner. There could be no one holier than Jesus. In one sense, it's all wrong that the Holy One is cast out of the holy city. Yet, in another sense, it's exactly according to plan. At his birth, Jesus voluntarily left the holiness of heaven to come and live among sinners. Now, at his death, he voluntarily leaves the holy city to die among sinners. It's all part of the plan. The book of Hebrews says Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make his people holy through his own blood. What does that mean? Well, Jesus has no sin of his own. But he's going to take on himself the sin of the world. And then he's going to be punished for that sin. That's what's going to happen as he hangs there and dies. The Apostle Paul explains it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So when we realize what Jesus is going to do on the cross, we can see that he must die outside the city, away from God's presence. On the cross, Jesus the Holy One is going to become sin. He will die cast out of God's presence so that you and I can come into God's presence. He has taken our sin and unholiness on himself. He's paid for it once and for all. He died away from God, so you and I could come near to God. 
He died under God's curse so you and I could be freed from God's curse. He has to die outside the city. And the place chosen for the crucifixion is mentioned in verse 33. The place called the skull. Older translations use the Latin word for skull, calvaria. That's where the name Calvary came from. It's just the Latin word for skull. Apparently the place was called the skull because it was a hill shaped like a skull. And as he's being crucified on this hill, Jesus prays for his enemies in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Who exactly is he praying for? Well, certainly the Roman soldiers who were doing the dirty work here. As far as they're concerned, the three men being crucified are all guilty criminals. They're just doing their job. And one of the perks of their job was the right to divide the victim's possessions among themselves. And so they throw the dice for Jesus' clothes. Apparently then, along with his physical pain, Jesus is enduring the shame of public nakedness. And yet, even as these men roll the dice, he's asking his father to forgive them. And surely he's also praying for the Jews who have condemned him. Yes, judgment is going to come on those who reject him. But Jesus longs for them to turn and repent and be forgiven. The phrase that stands out in this section is, save yourself, or let him save himself. It occurs over and over. It comes from the cries in verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. It comes from the soldiers in verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It even comes from one of those hanging beside him in verse 39. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. All of these people are working from the same assumption. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, he would use his power to break out of this situation. If he had the ability to save himself, he would save himself. But, they assume, since Jesus does not save himself, he must not be able to save himself. In one sense, that's a reasonable assumption to make. But it's an assumption that fails to reckon with the love and the mercy of our God. The truth is, Jesus is hanging here not because he has to, but because he is willing to. The call comes from the cross beside him, save yourself and us. But the message of the New Testament is, Jesus saves us by refusing to save himself. Someone has to pay the debt of sin. It was either us or Jesus. We can be eternally thankful that Jesus refused to save himself. He's not dying powerless here. He's showing his power by dying to bring our salvation. 
And even as he hangs on the cross, we find evidence that Jesus is not powerless. After the first criminal has hurled his insults, we read in verse 40, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a lot lying behind the few words of this other criminal. He acknowledges his own guilt here. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And he acknowledged Jesus' innocence. This man has done nothing wrong. And he trusts in Jesus' ability to save him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So somehow, maybe only in a hazy way, this man knows this is not the end for Jesus. After the cross, Jesus will receive a throne and a kingdom. This criminal knows that the man beside him is not a powerless fake. He's the real thing. He's the king. And notice this other criminal is the only person in the midst of this whole nightmare who calls Jesus by name. Among all of the accusing and ridiculing and mocking and sneering, one sincere voice cries out for mercy. And he receives mercy. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is not powerless. Even as he dies, he has power to save. He saves us by refusing to save himself. So how much do you need to understand in order to receive salvation? Obviously, no more than this criminal did. We need to understand and admit our own guilt, the fact that we've sinned and deserve judgment. We need to understand and confess Jesus' sinlessness and his power to save. And we need to come to him for mercy. Not coming with our own achievements and looking for a pat on the back. No, we must come by bringing only our sin and our helplessness and looking for mercy. Look at verse 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. The world watches. As darkness falls, a curtain tears, and the son dies trusting his father. 
Mark's gospel tells us the crucifixion began at the third hour, so that's 9 a.m. The sixth hour then is midday. That's when darkness falls over the whole land. And it stays dark until 3 p.m. That's the ninth hour. Now, obviously, darkness at midday is noteworthy. And darkness at midday while God's Son is being crucified is especially noteworthy. What we have here is a sign in the sky that's pointing us to the significance of what's going on at the place called the skull. When he was arrested the night before, Jesus said to his captors, This is your hour when darkness reigns. And there's certainly a sense in which this midday darkness points us to the fact that evil is at work. God's chosen one is being executed, even though he's innocent. It's evil. But the Old Testament teaches us to see something else in this darkness. The Old Testament prophets spoke often about a future day when God's judgment would be poured out. They describe it as a day of darkness. So, for example, we read in the book of Amos, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So in one sense, here on the cross, evil is having its day. But even as evil is having its day, God is working out his plan. His judgment is being poured out, but not on this sinful world. It's being poured out on his own sinless son. You and I need never experience God's judgment because Jesus has experienced it for us in our place. This sign in the sky gives us insight into what's happening here on the cross. But darkness is not the only sign being given. Verse 45 says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There were two curtains in the temple. Both of them were heavy and both of them were made out of blue, scarlet and purple cloth. There was an outer curtain that closed the temple itself off from the temple courtyard. Then there was a second inner curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place inside the temple. So which of the curtains was torn? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. If it was the inner curtain, then the priests would soon have spread the news that it was torn. But it's slightly more likely it was the outer curtain that was torn the one that shut people out of the temple and the one that could be publicly seen by everyone. Either way, the significance of the tearing is exactly the same. Since it was built, the temple had been the place where God is present among his people. And yet, he's also shut off from his people. He is holy. Humanity is not holy. So they're barred from his presence. They're shut out by a heavy curtain. They can enter the courtyard, but not the temple itself. But now, here, the events of this day have opened up access to God. The curtain has been torn. 
Humanity is no longer shut out of God's presence. No longer barred from approaching God. But there's more significance to this torn curtain. We're being shown that this bricks and mortar temple has served its purpose. It's had its day. Its sacrifices and its rituals are no longer needed. The reality has come now. The once for all sacrifice has been offered on the cross. So the altar can be abandoned. The priests can go home. Jesus is the true sacrifice. And he's the true high priest. We come to God through him, not through any other priest. This temple existed to point us forward to Jesus and his work. Now he has come and done his work. The temple has no further purpose in God's plans. The torn curtain is flapping in the wind. Saying to people, go inside, it's empty now. God has left the building. You won't find him there anymore. You'll find him by coming to the cross. Maybe we could sum it up like this. In the tearing of the curtain, God is saying, come to me. I will welcome you now in spite of your sin and your unholiness. But don't try to find me here in this building. You'll find me in Christ. He's the one who has opened up the way to me. He is the way to me. Then back on the hill, called the skull, the son dies. He dies trusting his father. Verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. It's true that Jesus also said other things on the cross. Matthew and Mark highlight other cries. They mention that Jesus gave this final cry, but they don't tell us what he said. Luke chooses not to mention the other cries, but he does focus in on this one. Each writer is focusing on a different aspect of the cross. Historically, they all fit together, but each one points out a different aspect. Maybe we could think of a jewel. If you turn it around, the light reflects off it in lots of different directions. You don't get the full beauty of it by looking from just one angle. The Gospels are a bit like that when it comes to the cross of Jesus. And as a Jewish man, Jesus would have been soaked in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. From his earliest days, he would have lived and breathed the scriptures. And not only that, later, Jesus will explain that the Old Testament is all about him. And when we realize that, it's no stretch that his final breath is a quotation from Jesus from Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a very simple prayer of trust. He's saying to his father, I came to earth to do this. And now I die trusting to your care. I drink the dregs of this bitter cup. I lay down my life. Trusting you to give it back to me. The son dies trusting his father. 
So as Jesus hangs on the cross, three very public signs or events take place. Darkness falls, a curtain tears, and Jesus publicly dies trusting his Father. And Luke is careful to tell us that the world is watching as these things happen. Verse 47, a centurion sees what had happened. Verse 48, all the people who had gathered saw what took place. In verse 49, all who knew him stood at a distance watching these things. Luke is inviting you and me to put ourselves in the place of those standing at the cross. He's saying to us, watch these things. See what is taking place. And then respond to it. He's saying this centurion responded. Who knows how many crucifixions he's seen before this day? Who knows what part he played in the mocking of Jesus that had just gone on? But now he has seen. He has paid attention. And he praises God. Luke is saying to us, watch, look, what do you see? Who is this on the cross? What is he doing on the cross? Is this nothing? Is this an insignificance of history? Or is this God the Son dying to prepare a place for you in God's presence? Of course, God doesn't ask us to believe only on the basis of the cross. He has given us still more reason to believe. There will soon be an empty tomb for us to think about. But for now, we're looking at the cross. In life, Jesus claimed to be God's anointed king. The notice on his cross announced him to be the king. And now the king is dead. At the start of our service, we sang, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In the Bible, God has interpreted the events we've been looking at. In the Old Testament, he promised one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, one who would bear the sin of many. The message of the New Testament is that this man we watched die was not a criminal. He was not a deluded man, a carpenter who thought he was God. And neither was he a good man who died for his principles. No, the message of the New Testament is that this man was God the Son come in human flesh. He came to a broken world, a world that was cut off from God. And he laid down his life to open up a way back to God. Yes, it's true, Jesus came to one place. He came at one time in history. But he came for men and women in every place, at all times in history. You and I might feel we're very far removed from this scene outside of Jerusalem. But the work Jesus came to do could only be done once. He had to come to one place at one time. But what he did has significance for all places and all times. So we're making a terrible mistake if we think this event has nothing to do with us. 
What we've been looking at this morning was done for the world. Listen to what John's Gospel says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What Jesus did, he did for the world. And the world is still watching the events of the cross. It's watching through the eyewitness accounts in the New Testament. Men and women all over the world continue to look at the cross. And many of them continue to see there the Son of God given for our salvation. Every week we come together here. And we come not because we are religious types of people, not because we love rituals and traditions. We don't come because we think we're superior to anyone else. We come together because God the Son gave himself for our salvation. Everything changed for us when we saw that his death was for us. We come here to celebrate and to honor the God who saved us by refusing to save himself. We're going to take the opportunity to do that together, to celebrate and honor what Christ has done as we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood.